Isaac Fitzgerald, he is Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM. We are back. We're back. Did we miss anything? <laughs> anything uh, happened? Any news? I think a couple of things might have happened last week. Oh my God. Although it feels like we've been gone for years. <laughs> years. Nine <laughs> days. Nine days on the road. We just did our second Making the Most of Road Trip. Uh, Austin, yep. Houston, yep. New Orleans, yep. Baton Rouge. That's right. Nine long <gasps> weeks. Yeah. No, but it seems like you guys all had a lot of news last week. And this week, well, writer Jordan Nardino tweeted <laughs> last night, next week has been exhausting. I'm already tired. Ain't that the truth? Already it was like shook. Monday morning started last night. Truly. I mean, I was planning on a peaceful, chill Sunday evening. I was just streaming the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is quite marvelous. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have a chill, like going back. Uh-uh. And Ronan Farrell and Jane Mara said, not on my watch. <laughs> you ain't streaming shit today. Uh-huh. And then Michael Avery said, certainly not on mine either. <laughs> Boom. It's like, whoa. And then everybody else jumped in too, because why not? Why wow. not start Monday on a Sunday? Here we are. Sabbath? Who? <laughs> Let's get into the news, children. It's time to go live from the district with BuzzFeed News reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Yeah, good morning. Do you guys realize how much news you missed while you were off gallivanting around America? Some of us were stuck here losing our freaking minds, man. Just it's been every single day. I missed one major development. I would put my phone down for eight minutes to do laundry and I missed something. I can't even do laundry anymore. So yeah, yeah, welcome back. To be welcome clear, back. we were glued to our phones oh, yeah. while we were on this road trip. It was the trip. one perk of at one point having a six hour long drive from Houston to New Orleans is that I was glued to my phone. Anyway, last night Ronan Farrell tweeted another serious, credible, disturbing allegation as Maisie Hirono and three other Democratic senators review a new misconduct claim against Kavanaugh, Jane Mayer and I found both skepticism and significant corroboration, including from people told right after. Paul, all right, what are these new allegations being made by Deborah Ramirez? So this is a woman who was a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's at Yale uh, when they were freshmen. They were supposedly at a party, and she, her memory is admittedly foggy. She says she had had a lot to drink. But the, the basics of the allegation are that when she was essentially blackout drunk and sort of on the ground, that he was sort of on top of her and exposed himself to her, and she managed to like sort of push him away, but that this was an event that... Uh, got around, people were laughing, she felt laughing about her and laughing about him doing that, and supposedly uh, several of her, their classmates heard about it afterwards. All right, serious allegations. Mm -hmm. um, what effect could they have on the confirmation process? That's a great question, because we, we don't yet know. This is coming out pretty much at the 11th hour. I mean, there was supposed to be a, a vote today on Kavanaugh's nomination, now that's been pushed back, but we, we don't know, they just reached an agreement on moving ahead with the other uh, complainant, the other person alleging uh, misbehavior by Brett Kavanaugh. So it's unclear whether there will be, that whether Ramirez would, would also be called in to testify. Certainly Democrats will be pushing for it. They're gonna spend the next 48, 72 hours trying to get more witnesses to come before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Republicans so far have been very reluctant to do that. They have allowed for Christine Blasey Ford to go forward, but no one else is being called. Uh, we don't know yet whether whether this woman could also go before the Judiciary Committee. That's probably going to be a 
hotly contested issue between Democrats and Republicans today. Okay, Ronan Farrow and Jane Merrill's article ends with Deborah Ramirez asking um, on the record for the FBI to investigate these allegations. That's that's the, the, the last few sentences of that story. Is that likely to happen? Has that happened from the FBI uh, with Blasey Ford's allegations? Not exactly. Uh, the White House and the Judiciary Committee have so far not really been sticking the FBI on investigating these allegations, and they've been saying that this is not a criminal matter, it happened so long ago, it's not a federal crime, and this is the role of the Judiciary Committee to handle. Now, all but the last one of those isn't really relevant in this case because this is a Supreme Court nominee. It doesn't need to be a criminal investigation for the FBI to be called in. They can request that the FBI do a background check or do a further background check on Brett Kavanaugh. But so far they've not been doing that. So far they have just been saying this is the role of the Judiciary Committee. We are going to be the ones investigating this and I suspect that is what we're going to continue to see. We may see some further calls between uh, Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the committee, his office, and maybe some of the people involved. I, I think they're going to try to keep the FBI out of this. Okay, so that's the reaction after this has gone public. But here's a tweet from Atlantic writer Adam Serwer. Mm. When Senate Republicans learned of a second sexual abuse allegation against Kavanaugh, their reaction was to demand the vote for his confirmation be moved up. Mm. Uh, so that was a surprising fact to me, Paul. Yeah. Is, is that, should that be surprising? No, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of Republicans see this as a smear against Kavanaugh. They see this as a Democratic smear against Kavanaugh specifically. Uh, you can see some senators last night, people like Tom Cotton, uh, tweeting about how, you know, we need to get this done, we need to move this ahead. Uh, this is just Democrats trying to, you know, sort of muck up the gears. Really, it comes down to only a few people, right? I mean, Brett Kavanaugh, we know that... 47, 48 Republicans are going to vote for him. Of course, you need 50 plus one, which they have the vice president for that. So it comes down to a small handful of people, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, maybe Jeff Flake, maybe Bob Corker. Uh, and really it comes down to what they think, because unless they say, hold on, hold on, hold on, we got to slow this down, or I'm not going to vote for this guy, uh, yeah, this is going to keep getting pushed forward pretty quickly. Wow. Okay. Also, <laughs> on top of everything else that this news cycle has thrown at us, uh, Michael Avenatti has also thrown himself into the fray, um, insisting that he represents yeah. a different woman from the two women we know of entirely. So what do we know about these new allegations? Thus far, we're just going on his tweets, so. Yeah, we are just going on his tweets. And so he, we know a little bit, he's tweeted some of it out. I'm not gonna get too much into the details just because we don't know where they're coming from exactly. But we do know that Avenatti is, uh, says he has a, another accuser. Uh, it is not one of the two women who've already come forward. He's calling for an FBI investigation. He's saying this woman will do a polygraph test. If uh, Brett Kavanaugh would do a polygraph test, he says there are corroborating witnesses. But beyond that, uh, we're just sort of waiting for that shoe to drop. Waiting for that shoe to drop. Well, let's talk Trapper Keepers. <laughs> uh, here's a tweet from Peter Baker of the New York Times. <laughs> Kavanaugh has calendars from the summer of 1982 that he plans to give the Senate that don't show a party that matches Blasey Ford's description. According to someone working for his confirmation, calendars can't prove it didn't happen, but his team will argue there is no corroboration. Paul, I always kept my party plans in my day planner as a teenager. Uh, is this the most significant defense Kavanaugh's team has put forward so far? It's definitely the most bizarre defense they've put forward so far. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as you say, 
who even has calendars from 35 years ago? I don't have, I, I don't even know what I was doing last week. But uh, anyway, I think this is just going to be a minor thing. Obviously, the main point of his defense is uh, denying this ever happened. People uh, like uh, uh, Mark Judge, his friend who was supposedly there, denying any memory of this. That's what this is going to come down to. The calendar thing is a bizarre side plot that actually I, I think is counterproductive for them because it is so goofy on its face. Obviously, you cannot be exonerated by a calendar. I don't even know why they're bringing that up. I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's going to help them in any way. So it might just be a thing that uh, gets uh, put on the table, but I, 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 can't, I can't see it coming down to uh, a calendar in any way. I mean, at this point, sure, why not? Uh, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Uh, the woman alleging Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her, this is in this case, uh, Blasey Ford, will testify Thursday before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So, of course, there has been a lot of back and forth between Grassley and Blasey Ford's uh, legal team. What do we know for sure has been nailed down in the negotiations between them? So, yeah, this was a breakthrough after several days of tense negotiations. We really, uh, throughout the weekend, were not sure if this was going to happen or not. And uh, the last minute, uh, yesterday, I can't even remember when, uh, they announced it is going to happen. Uh, it'll be this Thursday. Uh, Christine Bozzi Ford will testify. It looks like she will go first, uh, and then Kavanaugh will go after her. Her team wanted it the other way around, but doesn't look like they're going to get that. Uh, in terms of getting anyone else to testify. They wanted to have some corroborating witnesses appear. They wanted to have uh, 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 experts who can talk about psychological trauma. Looks like that's not going to happen. It looks like, as of right now, it's going to be Buzzy Ford and Kavanaugh back to back. Back to back. Now, is there a new date for the actual committee vote? And will this go to the full Senate? Uh, yeah, so we don't, we, uh, there's not a full date yet. It was, as I was saying earlier, it was supposed to be today. That obviously got delayed because this committee hearing is on Thursday. Uh, Grassley's offices have just said they put off the vote. They haven't put up a new day, but I would assume that if uh, the, the, this big hearing is on Thursday, they wouldn't do it that day. It'll probably be the following week, and uh, then the, the, it'll go to a vote of the full Senate. Of course, that's the final step in this process. That I'm not sure it could also happen potentially as early as next week if things don't continue to go off the rails. I mean, for all we know, we might be here with another hearing with another woman next week. The way things are going, it's hard to say. But that is, for Republicans, the best case scenario is uh, they have this Thursday hearing. They have enough votes to, to push this through basically next week. Okay, and, and just one more question. Mitch McConnell, uh, and his words, uh, seems pretty determined to, quote, plow Kavanaugh through, which I was like, unfortunate wording. Uh, has he indicated any change um, in his approach? Has the White House indicated any change in their thoughts about Kavanaugh? Oh, no, not at all. They are, they are adamant that they are going to get this through. And I get, some people brought up a good point about that, because I, I was tweeting about this initially, and I was just like, geez, this is like almost a, uh, seems to just completely disregard the seriousness of the allegations, and for Mitch McConnell to be coming out and saying that this is a done deal seemed inappropriate. And people brought up a good point that this nomination is on thin ice. I mean, it would not be shocking at this point if McConnell had to withdraw and put forward someone else. So what he is trying to do is he is trying to uh, evoke confidence, right? And to come out and, just, and to tell his people and send that message, no, don't waver, we are going to get that done. So I think there was a, a little bit of politicking there. On the outside, they are 100% steadfast. I am sure that behind closed doors, they're having a lot of long questions, uh, long discussions about can we get this guy to the finish line or do we need to start over? A lot of long discussions behind closed doors. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
Yeah, you guys know, I mean, you're on the road nine days, you never call, you never text, you never hit me on the, up on the gram to see how things are going. It's fine. Ah, uh, you know, we don't want to so come off as too needy, Paul. So we don't want to come off as too needy. Morning. But it is something that we really were thinking about on the road was how much we miss speaking to people like Paul to get the answers to these questions that Absolutely. we all have. Well, listen, up next, we're not done. We're talking with an organizer of the National Believe Survivors Walkout, and we'll be joined by two of the Ghoster siblings. Stick around. Get out. Welcome back. Here's a detail from Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer's new story in The New Yorker that I wanted to highlight. Deborah Ramirez said that witnessing the attempts to discredit Ford had made her frightened to share her own story. Yeah. That's so important. There are so many reasons not to come forward. And that's every single time something like this happens, I feel like we witness that. Okay. I'll never forget, and, and I think the Washington Post reporting on Blasey Ford when she first came forward, she described like what she was anticipating of the experience as annihilation. Mm -hmm. It was just like, why would I want, why would I just do this casually? And so I'm, I'm thinking about these women, of course, but I'm also thinking about all of us, mm. the hashtag why I didn't report. I'm thinking about young people watching and going, huh, is this how America works? Right, is this what happens when you come forward? To that point, Moira Donegan tweeted, imagine seeing what has happened to Anita Hill, to Kristen Blasey Ford, to Christine, sorry, Blasey Ford, to so many victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault by powerful men and deciding to tell the truth anyway. One thing I'm continually amazed by, women's courage, resilience, and determination. Amen to that. Well, here's a tweet from the incredible Tarana Burke. We believe Dr. Blasey Ford. We believe survivors. Join us for a national walkout in solidarity with survivors of sexual violence on Monday, that's today, September 24th, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by wearing black and posting a message to say, believe survivors. Chief Organizing Operator of the Women's March, Rachel O'Leary Carmona, joins us now. Rachel, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So what's the goal of today's walkout? Today's walkout is to show solidarity with survivors and to make sure that people understand um, the number of women and the number of people who are just not going to take it anymore. Women believe other women. Um, we have been in the streets since day one of this presidency and certainly day one of these uh, confirmation hearings. And we're not going to stop until our demands are met. Um, I was wondering if there was a symbolic or maybe just logistical difference in the choice to do a walkout today as opposed to a march. Um, yeah, I, I think that over the last few weeks we have um, had a, a number of different tactics when we're working with um, how to make our voices heard in D.C. because there's just so much opposition to it. And we have marched over the last two years. We've had um, many large marches, many large walkouts. Uh, but what we're doing right now is really an escalated tactic in response to escalated tactics. We are facing unprecedented attacks on our rights and um, we will respond with unprecedented um, you know, protests and um, opposition to those attacks. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask, for those that can't participate in a walkout, say your manager won't let you out or something like that, mm. do you have any other tips uh, for how people can get involved? Sure. They could go to cancelkavanaugh.com and they could write their, le their senators a letter. Um, and they could also call the national switchboard and, and speak to their, um, the office of their senators as well. Okay, appreciate that detail. Well, on Sunday, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said, quote, what am I supposed to do? Go ahead and ruin this guy's life based on an accusation. 
What would you say to the senator and many other people uh, who have similar thinking or view similar re rhetoric? I think it demonstrates just how out of touch this group of men are with the experience of not only survivors, but their constituents in general. Uh, so many women's lives have been ruined, not only by the assaults and the violence that they have faced, but sometimes by their choice, to your point, of coming forward. When thinking about, um, I read an article recently that said Anita Hill was getting, you know, threatening phone calls even in the, you know, in the last few years. And so the the political costs that women face um, to tell the truth about the abuse that they have um, experienced by in the hands of uh, powerful men is is something that's very systemic um, for us and, and a part of um, the patriarchy and sort of uh, control-based and, and um, systems of power that we have. And so I think that those, that those men just are, are out of touch um, to a certain extent willfully so because they're just not listening to their constituents and they're not listening to the people who are literally in the streets um, you know, begging to be heard. Willfully out of touch. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, now listen, uh, friends, you know if you follow me on Twitter, this next story, <laughs> aside from the Kavanaugh allegations, uh, is the story that I could not stop following, talking to Isaac about, tweeting about. I just, I'm obsessed. And of course, it's the Gosser family. Uh, New York Times politics reporter Ested Wellesley tweeted this, my kind of petty Democrat running for House seat in Arizona gets six of his Republican opponent's siblings to be in an advertisement against their brother. Six. 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 Yes, it's time to talk about the Ghosters. In case you somehow missed these political ads with their M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end, let's take a look. Paul Ghoster, the congressman, isn't doing anything to help rural America. If he actually cared about people in rural Arizona, I bet he'd be fighting for Social Security, for better access to health care. Paul's absolutely not working for his district. And he's not listening to you. And he doesn't have your interests at heart. My name is Jennifer Gosar. Paul Gosar is my brother. I endorse Dr. Brill for Congress. My name is Isaac Fitzgerald. I am Saeed Jones' <laughs> best friend. And wow. I, I mean, right? Stunning moment and powerful. Incredibly well put together ad. My goodness. Well, joining us now to discuss these ads and how they came to be are Joan and Jennifer Gosar. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us as well. Of course. Um, so, uh, Jennifer, let's start with you. Why was it important for you to speak out against Representative Paul Gosar, your eldest sibling, um, in such a public way? Uh, you know, it, the, the level of rhetoric and hypocrisy that have been publicly um, spoken by Paul for years now, but in particular the last about two years, has an unprecedented level of hate and divisiveness and, and uninformed information. He accuses media outlets of uh, fake news, and I think that he is. Hmm. And I there's, a, there's a point where, you know, I think as people... There's a, a level where we say, no, uh, there needs to be decency, there needs to be integrity in what we talk about, especially because it affects everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. and, and Joan, now you guys have spoken publicly in the past, but uh, you know, there was the public letter. I wanted to ask, what was the last straw for you? Um, Isaac, I believe that it was, we become estranged from Paul because of his extreme politics 
um, last year, you know, the Charlottesville rally, Paul made a false claim that George Soros was behind the rally. And further, he collaborated, that George Soros collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. And Mr. Soros was only 14 years old at the end of World War II. So seven of us put together a letter and um, published it in the Kingman Minor asking for Paul to apologize to Mr. Soros for these false claims. But Paul has yet to apologize. And I guess the last thing I'd like to say is, you know, people have said that our video was brutal and savage, but what Paul said about Mr. Soros was brutal and savage. And when Roseanne Barr said the exact same thing about Mr. Soros, um, her show was canceled and she lost her job. And, and I guess I'd like to know why Paul isn't held accountable for his false claim. Hmm. Um, well, Jennifer, your brother, of course, uh, responded on Twitter with several tweets, um, one of which ended, uh, see you at mom and dad's house, uh, and Stalin would be proud. Wow. Um, and so, and this, either of you can answer this. H have you spoken uh, with your brother directly since the ads went live? Uh, do you have a response to him? Well, my response is simply resign. Um, you can stop campaigning, just resign. Um, in terms of have I talked with them? No. Uh, you know, the, the level of discourse you can imagine that requires one to actually take this, uh, make the step, you know, there's not one. Um, I don't talk to Paul in general, um, but, you know, I do feel that it doesn't matter if it's Paul. This is a, a place where we have a special voice, but to anyone that, that speaks in this way, I don't think there's a place for it. And what's more, I'm not only... Uh, against this this kind of discussion. I'm also for David Brill, and, and I do want to at least point out that nuance. I think it's being missed, and, and I think it's important not only to be against something that's wrong, but it's also important to be for something that is positive. Mm. Mm, for something that is positive. Uh, I, I wanted to say also, your mother has responded to the ads, and she shares your brother's political beliefs. Uh, she said that she was shocked and crushed um, have you spoken to your mother since these ads went live? Uh, do you plan to? What would you say to her? Joan, do you run, um, respond to that? Should I? I, yeah. I? You know, either way, I'm cool. Um, well, we have, I haven't spoken to my mom, and, and, and I frankly don't know how much my mom knows about what my brother Paul has been uh, engaged in. And I, I believe that, um, you know, her, her views are, you know, um, you have to ask her about what those are, but um, no, I, I have not. Um, and uh, I guess you I'm know, leaving it Joan, that. if I might interrupt you just for a second, um, we've been uh, in a bit of a surreal whirlwind of media requests and, you know, an outpouring of things on Twitter and in other places. So it's hard to actually find the time um, to, um, to, you know, to, to reach out. And, and as you can imagine, this is a really difficult and delicate subject. Um, I want to allow my mom some space to, to feel whatever she feels, respect that. Um, and I think at a later point, I'll contact her, at least myself, because I feel like this is really hard. Mm. You know, people that say that you sold your family out, I don't think they understand what kind of thought and, um, you know, just a tumult, a conflict, it is to actually take a step like this.
Mm. There are years that we were quiet before any of this, any of this happened. So it's, um, I just want to respect her and be as fair to her as I can be, you know? Whew. Uh, thank you both, Joan and Jennifer. Uh, this can't, can't be easy, as you said, and we do really appreciate you taking time to speak with us this morning. Thank you for having us. Of course. Yeah, thank you for having us as Ab well. Absolutely, of course, of course. And the phone going off right then, you know, I feel like especially her yeah. speaking about all these media requests that she's getting. Um, well, listen, Twitter, we wanna hear from you. How are you going to handle political disagreements with your family this Thanksgiving? Uh, because you can let us know using the hashtag AM2. November will be here before you know it. Right. It is time to start thinking about that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, many of us have probably been thinking of it for at least the last two years, right? Um, it's not a totally new scenario, but I do feel like the Gosser family just, and, and they've said this, right? That they're like, listen, look at what's going on. We cannot continue to act as if uh, this is normal, right? And uh, it's, an, it's, 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 it's like tea, mm -hmm. but it's also real, you know, it, these conversations. It's very moving to hear her talk about how much thought they put into this, knowing the reaction that it was going to get, this decision to step forward. Um, yeah, I think, but I will say to their point, I think the time is now to have the tough conversations. I think a lot of people realized that in 2016, uh, maybe after uh, the election had happened. Well, here we are. Well, for now, enough family talk. It's time for Fire Tweet. <laughs> Let's burn a little sage. Fire! All right, this first tweet comes from Petty Quotes. My room be so clean, then boom, I need an outfit. <laughs> True, which is why I rarely clean. <laughs> I, was, I was intrigued. I was I excited to see your response to that it's one. It's a mess. All right. Edward, you tweeted, humans really existed for 20,000 years just for a few generations of capitalists to fuck it all up and make the earth uninhabitable in just 200 years. Tragic. Oh my mm. goodness. I mean, I feel like the histori Ooh. historical accuracy of that. Oh, it's accurate, girl, it's over. Maybe not so much, but the emotional, the emotional accuracy. Mm -hmm. It's post-apocalyptic out here, darling. Okay, <laughs> this tweet comes from Michael. Age 25, uh, let's wait until 11 p.m. and get home at 5 a.m. Age 35, sometimes I don't eat chips because they're too loud. Also, I'm super into beets now. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you gotten to that part of the aging well, process? Have you gotten into pickling You yet? know, I'm only 32, Okay. Um, and thus far I don't like beets, but chips are often quite loud. Oh, let me tell you, beets are right around the corner. <laughs> Andrew, you tweeted, if Big Bird was real, we'd kill him in seconds, and everyone knows it. Oh, okay, and That's may I? That's true, That's I know true. I'm already. Listen, if a bird was that big, we'd be scared of it, we would fear it, we would maybe wonder what it tastes like. I just want to say, I am aggrieved that I was not hosting AM to DM when the Bert and Ernie news broke, children. <laughs> I am aggrieved. I am so sorry. I am so sorry I was not here for that moment. But when Waldorf and Statler come out the closet, I'll be ready. Wow. I'll be ready. That's some good fan fiction right there. <laughs> I had to say it. Right. Okay, tweet of the day. Let's do it. <laughs> it comes from John Bon Jovi himself. <laughs> uh, I was in the grocery store and a Prince song was playing over the intercom. I heard, Richard, come to the deli. Richard, 30 seconds later, the same thing. Richard, Richard, come to the deli, please. And some guy out of nowhere yelled, come on, Richard, you're fucking up this Prince song. 
Get to the deli, Richard. Deli Let Richard. this song play through. Come on, man. Or whoever's DJing should just put it back on. Richard, Whatever the grocery, the vibe, Richard. <laughs> grocery DJ's doing. <laughs> Listen, up next, Ben Smith talks to the authors of Climbing the Hill. Stick around. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back. I'm Ben Smith, and joining me today are Jamie Harrison and Amos Sneed, the authors of Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. And I guess, like, my first question, you're Amos a Republican, Jamie's a Democrat. This is kind of an old-style book about partisan comedy, and it feels like you are visitors from another planet. <laughs> I mean, the last, the last segment was oh, people attacking their brother yes. because their views are so far apart. I mean, this book, which is a guide for young people on how to get into politics, just feels like it's from another planet. Are we going back to that planet? What are you doing here? Well, listen, I hope we go, go back to that planet. We really need to find some way that we can all come together. Things are just got, have gotten so toxic. And listen, I, I'm the biggest party hack. You know, I'm the associate chair of the DNC. But I also understand that it's important to find uh, brothers and sisters on, across the aisle and find things that we all agree on so that we can make the country a better place. And you, I mean, you, you came up as a Republican on, Ca on Capitol Hill, and I think folks, Republican staffers on Capitol Hill, are mostly steering reporters away, steering their, their bosses out of the way of reporters asking them what Donald Trump said today, about what Donald Trump said today. Again, like, how do these rules sort of apply in this totally changed moment? You know, I, I appreciate the question, Ben, and, and thanks for having us here. We do stick out a little bit. I, we looked around on the way, and we're like, nobody else is wearing ties here. So <laughs> we realize we've gone it's back old school. Security is on its way. <laughs> uh, you know, I started working on Capitol Hill 16 years ago. And when I first started, you would hear from, from the older people in the office, well, it didn't used to be this way. And we used to work together. And they used to go, the members went to dinner at the end, at the end of the work day. And fast forward 16 years later, we've gone backwards. So what Jamie and I are actually trying to do is we're trying to hit a spark here, and we want to tell the next generation of young people, you can get involved in politics, you can get involved working on Capitol Hill, and it doesn't include standing and yelling at the other side 24 hours a day. You know, some people hear that rhetoric, and they hear Joe Biden say, oh, back in the days, you know, when I worked with the great segregationists of the, of the you know, sort of late, <laughs> of the late Southern Democratic Party, and things weren't so bad, and say, you know, like, that actually, that was bad. Like, you, you know, you were working with people and making compromises on really important issues, and I think a lot of voters maybe don't want that now. I, I think you're right. I think a lot of voters don't want it. I think both sides, Republicans and Democrats, have run to the extreme. They've, they've gone to their corner, the red corner, the blue corner. But if you come to Washington and you look at who is working on Capitol Hill, if you look at who's working in some of these uh, the agencies and the federal departments, I'd say like 85, 90 percent of them that are there are there for really good reasons, that they believe in this country, they believe in our democracy. And if you went back there and you kind of pulled it back a little and got past you know, the news cycle that pops on Twitter every two hours, there's actually people working in Washington with really good intentions. And so what Jamie and I were trying to do through this book, Climbing the Hill, is showcase that and say it is possible, this is a path that you can go down if you want a career in politics. And, and, and Jamie, I had a question sort of about, about the DNC particularly yeah. and about, the, and I'm sure you saw Darren Sand's story recently yeah. about this kind of generation of black women who were the core of the, of the party leadership for years and who feel they've been pushed out. And I'm curious, what you make of that, those claims, and also how it connects to, what, to your book. Listen, it's a, it's a hard situation. There's a lot going on, uh, not only within the party, but 
in the country. And so all of, in terms of that particular article, all of the women that are, are mentioned in that article are mentors of mine, dear friends. Tom Perez has been a great chair. And in the end of the day, what I would like to see is that we all get together, have a conversation, make sure that those things that we have disagreements on, that we can work them out, because the focus can't be on the internal strife that we have. The focus has to be on how are we making a difference? How are we doing the things that help poor kids who grew up like me in South Carolina, who uh, are helping the kids that are on the border? Those are the things that are really, really important. And then in the end of the day, all those folks mentioned in that article and Tom Perez are on the same page as it relates to those particularly important issues. Something that used to have a level of partisan comedy around it was Supreme Court nominations. I mean, you have to go back, you have to go back a ways. But I'm curious what you would say to your kind of fellow Republicans in this moment when it feels like it's just totally hardening up and that, you know, 50-some Republican senators will say that Christine Ford is a liar and 49 Republican Democrats will believe her. And I don't know, what do, what do you say, like, is that, I mean, that's, it's easy to talk in the abstract about kind of partisan comedy. What would you say to the Republican leadership now around, around this story and how to handle it? I think as you're looking at this story right now and you're looking at the wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this and you know, even last night with the New Yorker story that came out, I think it actually plays into what we're trying to do with this book. And if you look, both sides have run and said, we're not moving, we're not budging, here's what we believe, we can prove nothing, but here's where we're gonna stay. We should slow this nomination or we should move forward with this nomination. And what we're trying to say right now is there actually could be some common ground. Right now that does not exist. It does not exist in politics today and it doesn't exist you know, with social media and with the media coverage that we're seeing, uh, people get really justified in their position and they don't want to hear the other side. Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. And I think, I mean, I think at the DNC, you are also in the middle of a very complicated situation like this, which are the allegations against Keith Ellison. Yeah. And I mean, do you, do you believe the accuser? How does, and, and how are you thinking about that? Well, with that situation, there's an investigation going on right now. I'm not at liberty to talk about the, the details of that, but uh, there is an investigation. And I think that's what the Democrats want to happen in the Kavanaugh situation, is that you have to take these allegations extremely seriously, regardless of who they are, uh, who the accuser is or who is being accused. Uh, and you need to have a thorough investigation. Due process needs to be in order uh, for both sides, but you need to make sure that you go through that process and you take these things extremely seriously. All right, and just to end with a question about the book, uh, feel free to go ahead and make your best pitch to <laughs> a young person, to, not for the book, but to, to actually, uh, sorry, to act, you should read the book, but to actually get involved in politics right now at this unbelievably toxic moment. Listen, it's important, uh, the, the end part of what our book title is, <laughs> Thank you. Climbing a Hill, How to Make a, <laughs> a Career in Politics, but it's about making a difference. That's really the important part. Uh, you know, I always say that you may go to Capitol Hill, you may take different avenues to get there, but ultimately the destination is still the same. It's about making a difference in the lives of people. And, in, and on an individual basis, as a, a young person, it's about finding your passions and doing the things that you are meant to do. Uh, and that's what this book crystallizes. Well, thank you guys so much for coming hey, on. Thank you very much. We're, we appreciate thank you, it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm joined by Tracy Ullman, 
true comedy legend, most recently nominated for an Emmy for her HBO series, Tracy Ullman Show. Tracy, thank you so Hello. much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So in your series, you parody The Great British Bake Off, which is super, <laughs> super funny. Everyone here at BuzzFeed loves that show. And the joke is that people watch this show because there's so much shit going on in the world that you have to watch a baking show to have any sort of escapism. Yeah. Do you think that's what people were doing with comedy now? Yeah, because I mean, it is true. You know, it's like there's all hell's broken loose. We're in this doom spiral, you know, and yet people just, if they can watch the Bake Off and just look at some flour and water and eggs and it calms them all down. You need this stuff to calm people down. It's like Strictly Come Dancing and those shows. Uh, yeah, I like that sketch too. It's fun. Yeah, it's a funny one. Another one I really liked was your woke support group. Oh. It made me laugh really, really hard. So Are true. It's, yeah, I mean, it's very true. Are you kind of over the wokeness in our culture? It's driving you nuts. I mean, it is crippling. Like, there's a, a young friend of mine who is just particularly woke. You know, everyone was PC, got a bit PC in the 90s, and but now it's uh, there are people that won't watch Friends because it's, like, too much fadism and it's homophobic and, like, worrying about how they're perceived because they were... Uh, yeah, so that the overly woke support group seemed like a good way to... It's a great sketch. It's like a perennial sketch for me. Well, it was a good sketch for this year. But then I'm thinking, like, I'm not one of the young, woke people, so what's my place in this sketch? So I think I'm like somebody that was very woke in the early 80s, which my character is. I probably went to Nicaragua to try and help the war at that time, you know. So now I'm this, like this period woke person. But uh, I'm glad you like that one. Do you think it's gone viral? Do you so this is the new thing. Yeah, I mean, that's how we all know that things are doing well. Yeah. They're going viral that's like, now. And I did another sketch about what were you wearing that was a guy reporting his phone being stolen and the policeman sort of treating it like a woman talking about, and there was analogies with like rape in it. And, and it's that got 35 million hits. And the man from the BBC rang me up and said, we've had 35 million. I said, do you mean 3 million? You know, it's astonishing. I know, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a good way to reach people, for sure. That was a good piece, too. Speaking of the culture of this time right now, obviously it's an interesting time in comedy and Hollywood in general with all the Me Too stuff going on. Do you ever find yourself reevaluating things from your career with all these conversations going on? Oh, there was sexism. Yeah, it was so different. God, when I was... 70s. I started as a dancer in the late 70s, and um, I could destroy some people's careers who pinched my bum in the wings. But will I? Hmm. I'll think about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> it was Benny Hill. The only example I had of comedy in England in the early 80s, Benny Hill, which if you're, you want to Google that guy, running around pinching girls' bums. That was the role for women in comedy. You'd wear a bikini, you'd go, oh, the doctor is seeing that. Did a little of pinch your bum. And I was like, and in America, you had Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett and Gilda Radner and Lily Tomlin. I thought, we're so behind with comedy, I think I'd better go to America as a woman. So I did. Hannah Gadsby and Annette said that she thinks that oh, comedy is ill equipped to deal with sexual violence. And we know we've had like the Louis C.K. stuff coming up. Do you think that that's true? I love Hannah Gadsby, by the way. I love that they put her on at the Emmys. I saw her show in London, which was really. It's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Have you seen the show? Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I've been like, been doing the lesbian jokes and laughing at myself and I realize I can't do this anymore. And by saying that and doing a show about, I can't do this anymore, it's so brilliant. It's gotten her so much attention. She's going to have to do it some more. But she was refreshing at the, uh, 
I guess I try and get my writers to, to do this stuff that you're talking about. For me to comment in a way that's too serious or takes the joy out of what I do, I don't, you know, I'd rather write a sketch about it or um, I approach things as an actress. I'm not a stand-up comic. I'm don't, I've never been in Hannah Gadsby or Louis C.K.'s world. I could portray Hannah Gadsby, but I could never do what they do standing up. Like, I've never done that. It's not what I do. I think I'm still a character actress in what I do. Um, transform and things like that. Yeah. Speaking of the characters you've played, in the past you've played black characters, Asian characters. Do you regret playing characters? Were you no, but this is the whole... I can imagine if I did that. I don't think it would be a place of that now, but I did that in the HBO show in the 90s and I never had any problems. I mean, it, or problems or complaints. It wasn't like that then and it was really funny and it was really spot on and uh, I know it's a different time isn't it but uh, I, I, my criteria for doing it was I remember in the late 80s Eddie Murphy played a white man in a film and I was doing my show and they said well let's be a black lady and why not if you can do it well enough and it comes from the right place and people do sound like that and talk like that and did live lives like that you know, I so I did it. Well, why don't you do it anymore? I don't think it's the right time for it. I would, maybe I would. I, you know, it's not, I don't think it's, it's not the right time. Hmm. So this is obviously a Twitter show. So much of the, you were talking about the political discourse on your show. Yeah. And so much of the political discourse does happen on Twitter. And we noticed that you really aren't involved in social media. You're not involved in Twitter. So what, what was that? Did you, is that a conscious decision or? Is it just something you're not interested in, or? Um, somebody pretends to be me on Twitter, which is really annoying, and they have that blue tick next to them that says that they haven't been accepted yet. But it's been five years, and they still don't take them down. Um, and it's, it's really frustrating. I have a lovely group of people that always, like, tweet for me. I check out Twitter, and I think it's got become, at first it was fun and interesting, and now it's just, an echo chamber and really when you get to the bottom of some controversy if you cause it or if they're going on about it, it's only two people that have been offended or you know messed up by something or they've got the I just did a, a sketch in England where I portrayed the left uh, wing uh, opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn uh, he's had anti-semitic slurs um, you know, been accused of being anti-Semitic and, and meeting with the IRA years ago and Hamas and Hezbollah, and he has, you know, and he's... Uh, so we did a sketch about him being at an airport, and I'm Jeremy Corbyn, and he meets a rabbi, and then he meets the head of the IRA. Hey, Jerry Adams, how you doing? Now, Jeremy, his past comes back to haunt him, then he gets in a cab, and, you know, and it was absolutely, you know, it, was, it went down very well, it was very interesting, it was based on fact. The storm on Twitter! Hi, I'm this Zionist conspiracy with me and David Baddiel just because he happens to be a Jewish writer and weird. And it boils down to maybe two people had their nose put out of joint by it, but it makes it look huge and it's not. Um, but then the defenders, as you know, came forward and it, it, eventually it, it uh, petered out. Well, that was that day's storm, but it was, I don't know, social media reminds me of being at school and there was always like a group I didn't want to be with and if you get on social media they always contact you again, you're like, oh no, I don't want to be friends with you then. And I'm, but I know what it, it means, I can, but it gets overwhelming 
and uh, too many people's opinions in the pot, and it, it just must drive you mad. Does it take any of the joy of comedy out of for you, the fact that now you do get these social media storms if you do something that's controversial? No, I don't care what people say. You do what you want to do, and then you... I did a piece about Twitter on the show where I find the guy that... There was a guy that used to say things about, I hate her so much. I wish she'd get AIDS and die of cancer tomorrow. I would have shagged her in the 80s, but not now. And it was like, what is this guy's problem? You know, you read this vile stuff. And my daughter was like, it's like a massive overreaction. So we wrote a sketch about that. And me and my daughter were in it. And we go and find the guy. We call him Ian from Car Shop in our show that has been saying these horrible, horrible things about me. And you go, hello, I'm here. We, you know, and it confronted him. And it, it's pretty good sketch. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like Black Mirror where the people who do these things on social media end up to be wor worse than the people that they are criticizing yeah. in some yeah. senses. And it's, it's cowardly with their anonymity. Um, but there's always been people this be, you know, kids sitting in the bleachers at school going, look at her, she's fat, I hate her. But now they're online doing it. You've got to be right brave, you've got to be bold, you've got to do what you do and put it out there and don't, you know, get inhibited by people saying, oh, well, that might be perceived as that. And, you know, you're not woke about that issue. And that's, oh, what if it means that? And you go, oh, calm down. Yeah. Have a laugh. <laughs> Have a laugh. I think that's something we can all agree on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Tracy. Season three of Tracy Ullman's show premieres September 28th on HBO. All right, our new cycle alert system has indeed been upgraded from an oh bitch to a bitch. We have some breaking news here from Jonathan <laughs> Swan of Axios. Rod Rosenstein has verbally resigned to John Kelly. And now that tweet was quickly followed up by a denial. As CNN's Erica Orden tweeted, a source close to Rosenstein disputes the Axios report that Deputy uh, Attorney General, I'm sorry, uh, Deputy AG Rod Rodenstein has verbally resigned. Laura A.J. Jarrett reports the source says that Rosenstein expects he is being fired. Now, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, would take an on oversight of the Mueller probe. Okay, so we're joined now by Ben Smith, who, of course, was just finishing up a live interview. And we were like, you're going to stay on set for us. Yeah, so literally you were walking off set, and I was like, hi, hi, that was great, so... Never a dull moment. <laughs> Don't you love live TV? Okay, so what do we make of this news? I mean, I think, you know, the, the this is we don't know like mm -hmm. Trump Trump has a way of saying things that then it turns out he doesn't entirely have the power to do and this could be one of those Rosenstein could resign his resignation could be accepted or not by Jeff Sessions I mean there's as always we're operating in this kind of haze of unknowns but I think the sort of important thing to focus on is that there's this very 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 thin line of professional Justice Department staffers and conservative lawyers who, but who are really aren't of the Trump part of the conservative movement, who are really of the Brett Kavanaugh part of the conservative movement, basically. Mm. Um, you know, who you could, who might wind up standing up to Trump on matters of kind of constitutional law, what can the president do, what can't the president do, and who stand between Trump and Mueller. Okay, and so between it, Trump so and Bob point, Mueller. Though it's like stunning news just even to hear the words verbal resign or whatever. I mean, it's, still it feels like happen. another, it's this very, very, very thin wall between Trump and Mueller, and this feels like it's being chipped away at further. Chipped yeah. away at further. I did, I did want to ask, is there really a difference if he resigns or if he is fired? Are there any implications? Is there anything that would be different? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 I think, you know, what's, I don't think anybody cares that much about Rod Rosenstein. I think a lot of people care about Mueller and the Mueller investigation into, into, into Russia, into 
alleged collusion with Russia. Um, I think if he were to, the various Republican members of the Senate who have time after time rolled over for Trump on a very, very wide variety of issues have said that firing Mueller would be a red line, whatever that means. Mm. And so this seems like it brings us that much closer to Trump calling their bluff. Okay. Well, um, I know you read up on this literally in the last few minutes, but what I do we know nothing about? It. I know <laughs> what do you Transparent know? News, baby. <laughs> what do you know, if anything, about who would step into Rod Rosenstein's uh, so at least temporarily? So the Solicitor General, who's the, mm -hmm. that's the guy who argues the government side before the Supreme Court, is okay. a very, very kind of prestigious role for for a great constitutional lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, a guy named Noel Francisco, who comes entirely out of this Brett Kavanaugh school, a very kind of pedigreed, um, credentialed, very, very small world of Supreme Court litigators, who are of this part of the conservative movement that has absolutely taken advantage of, of Trump and embraced the Trump presidency to the degree it puts their judges onto courts, but that also has rejected a lot of his attempts to, or at least his rhetoric, about the power of the presidency. Interesting. All right, well, Ben, thank you so much for sticking around Ooh. and joining us on that one. Up next, Stephanie talks with Eliza, Bl uh, Eliza Blank, stick around. Here's a tweet from our own BIM out of One May. Me watching the sill on Instagram live hours later, learning to how to care for my Calatheas. This is Ladies Who Lead, and I'm joined now by the founder of the sill, Eliza Blank. Eliza, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all things plants in your story. Thank you, yeah. So you started your company on Kickstarter, actually. Why did you decide to go that route? Well, I think, so this is six years ago now. Um, the, the reason behind the Kickstarter was really actually for validation. So here was a crazy idea. We were going to come in and rebrand the plant category and create an entire consumer experience around it. No one knew if that was going to work yet. So the Kickstarter, um, in my opinion, was really for validation. Were people going, was this idea really going to resonate with people? So you were working in marketing and branding before this. What made you decide to go out on a limb and start your own business? So I was very much inspired by my early career in brand strategy, as you mentioned. Um, loved consumer brands, wanted to do something on my own, really felt compelled to be an entrepreneur and just needed the category that was going to inspire me and motivate me to really dedicate a lifetime of effort to this. And plants just uh, fell into my lap as that opportunity from my own experience day to day. What about plants did you like? Why did you decide to become a plant entrepreneur? So it truly, it was moving to New York City. I grew up in a rural part of Massachusetts. I didn't really realize how much I loved plants until I left that part, um, left my home, came to New York, realized I was in this concrete jungle, and, and that getting plants into my life here in the city was really difficult, and that I felt a consumer brand was actually the way to solve that. I feel like plants are having such a moment among millennials now. I don't know if it's just a New York thing or if it's an all over the country thing, but everyone seems to love plants. Why do you think that is? Well, I think now we spend so much time in front of a computer. We spend so much time indoors. We're really starting to become disconnected from nature, especially, you know, of course, we all, a lot of us live in urban areas. Uh, I don't think it's just unique to New York. I think this is true for an entire generation of wanting to connect with nature, but needing to do it in a different way than our parents did because we just have different lifestyles. 
profiles. So the still obviously has two brick and mortar stores, but you also have an online business. Mm -hmm. Were investors skeptical about selling plants online or did you get a lot of pushback? Uh, in, in the early days, yes. I mean, now we sort of think, uh, we take it for granted, we think everything's online. But again, the still started online six years ago and it felt very unique. Um, putting plants in the mail isn't entirely unique. We used to order plants through mail order catalog. So that's not all that new, but I think applying it to an online medium was really the missing piece of this puzzle to make it super easy for people. So you, your business is expanding dramatically. You're expanding to the West Coast, but you're also expecting your first baby. Yes. As we can see. <laughs> Do people treat you differently now that you're an entrepreneur who's pregnant? Um, you know, I've actually had a wonderful experience in that. Uh, in this year, uh, raising our, our uh, Series A, I was lucky enough to have investors who just couldn't care less. I mean, and that's really the right response. It's not really relevant to my ability to run the business. Um, certainly, we've, we've had such success in this year while I've been pregnant. Um, so it's just another chapter. I feel like so many women do worry about how becoming a mom and how becoming pregnant will affect their career. Do you have any advice for women who want to go forward with their entrepreneur dreams but also want to have a baby? I mean, I haven't had the baby yet, so I'm no expert, but I would say that, you know, I've, uh, again, since having the business for six years, I've gone through a lot of milestones. I got engaged, I got married, now I'm pregnant. Uh, you really uh, have to understand that work is just a part of life and you have to make room for both in whatever way makes sense for you. There's no real answer or right answer or formula because it's going to be different for everybody. Has it had any impact on how you view maternity leave policies or anything like that at your job? In fact, yes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the SIL um, has a lot of, obviously, women at the company. Um, we have definitely taken, uh, I think, uh, the right approach to considering our parental policy. I'm actually piloting it as the first pregnant woman at the company, so wow. we'll see how it goes. But, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but we definitely, you know, want to make sure that we're supporting all the women at our company through all of their life stages. Did you set out to start a company that did have a lot of female employees or was it just something that happened organically? I think it just happened organically and in fact the industry is known to be very heavily male dominated so I really love this shift and I think it actually is more reflective of the fact that a lot of our customers happen to be young women. Why do you think the industry is so male dominated? Well, I think a lot of old industries are. <laughs> True. <laughs> so I think, you know, we're sort of in this moment in time where we're, you know, coming into an antiquated space and kind of shaking things up. And um, I think it's very welcome and, and very much, you know, we can attribute our success to the fact that our, uh, a lot of our team looks like our customers for the very first time. What do you think it is about the sale that makes you guys so different than you say the antiquated ways of buying plants in the past? Well, I think, you know, um, the the independent garden centers, to no fault of their own, you know, have become a little bit more stale in the sense that, you know, they're often family run, they're under resourced, they're at their third and fourth generation, um, and they're fragmented all over the country, and they just can't innovate as quickly because oftentimes they're, you know, literally tied to, you know, acreage of land in some suburban part of some state. Um, you know, they're all definitely trying to make that effort because they see the opportunity, but I think just us being so new and from outside the industry really allows for innovation. 
What is your guys' next move? Where are you expanding? So, well, we are expanding our physical footprint. We've found uh, incredible success with our stores. It's the best way to connect with our customers in real life. But um, all of that certainly supports our online business. And we want to be able to get into more categories. So we're, we're very well known for houseplants today, but we expect to broaden that so that we can uh, be the resource for all gardeners. That's so exciting. And I have to show you, last time you were on the show, you brought in a bunch of plants <laughs> and I think I tweeted about it, but you let me take one home. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show you, I have not killed it. <laughs> Here he, he is, Peter Kavinsky, the plant. I don't remember off the top of my head. Bird's nest fern. Bird's nest fern. <laughs> I, I was telling you I had to Google it before actually putting it in my house because I wanted to make sure Buffy, if she ate it, would not get sick. It's pet friendly and he's growing alive and well. So I thank you, Eliza. That. Absolutely. You are now a plant parent. I am a plant parent. It's very exciting. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for coming on and joining thank us. Thank you. More AM's DM is up next. Our Man Crush Monday tweeted this about his wife. She fought for her life, for our child, for recognition, for equal pay, for women's rights. She never gives up. Hashtag I love you, Serena. Laura Witt, managing editor of Wear Your Voice magazine, is here with me to talk about our mutual love of this person. Hey there, Laura. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, without any further ado, our Man Crush Monday is... Alexis Ohanian Sr. Obviously, look at him. We love him. He is our favorite. Okay, so this all, we decided to recognize Alexis this morning because there was a lot of hubbub on Twitter last week after a piece in Slate criticized Serena and Alexis's relationship, calling it performative and a charade. And you, Lara, wrote a great thread breaking down why it was so misguided. So can you talk about that thread a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within the context of, uh, of everything that Serena goes through on a regular basis, whether it was the U.S. Open, but also ongoing criticism and racism and sexism throughout her entire career, it, that piece in particular was, um, I want to say misguided, but also deeply sexist, deeply racist in ways that not many people may be able to point out because it's just an article about their relationship. Now, the piece itself was supposed to be part of a uh, pop-up blog about relationships on Slate, and that was the primary defense for the piece was that there was context and they were just going through the motions of discussing different kinds of relationships. Now, my thread broke down why that person's particular perspective could be seen as being racist and sexist. Um, the writer herself is a white woman. Her name is Heather Schweidel. Uh, I don't want to mispronounce that, um, but I've always been uh, a little bit critical of when white women try to talk about black women and their relationships to other people, because it's just not a perspective that you yourself have the experience to be able to discuss. So uh, my thread broke down the ways in which it was almost as if the author was in disbelief over the fact that Serena could be so loved, so openly loved. Uh, Alexis has always been very open about how much he admires Serena. There, he, he goes above and beyond what a lot of people expect that black women are allowed to receive and allowed to feel. And Serena in, in particular has always been through so much bullshit from people that seeing Alexis love her that way is, it is revolutionary. And so someone who picks apart 
their relationship and sees it as being performative rather than just being authentic and wonderful and much needed, um, it just comes off as being super racist and sexist. So that's what my thread was pulling apart. Um, that was that was what I needed to say. You also pointed out that Beyonce was criticized for her pregnancy announcement and celebrating that in such a public way. Why do you think that some white writers are so uncomfortable with seeing black women be celebrated? Well, mostly because white women like to be centered pretty much all the time, um, whether it's through feminism or pop culture. You don't see think pieces pop up about white women's pregnancy announcements. You just don't. You know, you see it on the cover of People magazine. You'll see it on Us magazine. Now you'll see it on Instagram and Twitter. You know, you do beautiful photo shoots to celebrate your pregnancy. But the main reason for why Beyonce was criticized for doing it was because she's black. There is no other good reason for it. And it was as if white women took that personally. It's as if they take Serena's happiness personally as being some sort of affront to them as if there is not enough happiness in the world to be shared by everyone or that black women are not deserving of being celebrated in that way because of white women's sensitivity. It's, it's incredibly racist and it's also, it's tragic because when you point it out, white women tend to get very defensive. Um, they bring up the white women tears and then you, you're there, you're the bully. As a black woman, you're a bully. Um, so that's why I thought that linking the two of those together were they're necessary. They have, they're, they're part of the same context of the, the, the dynamics of American society, of racism, of sexism. Um, and, you know, they were similar in that sense. One of the things that I personally love so much about following Alexis and Serena is how supportive he is of her. And he actually gets a lot of comments from people on his social media asking him if he feels somehow like, uh, emasculated by her success or the fact that he's always in the supporting role. I've seen people ask him in interviews, what's it like having to sit on the sidelines while everyone's focusing on your wife? What do you think, why do you think that is? I mean, I guess we know it's sexism, but what, do you, what message do you think it sends that he is so supportive of her, never tries to take the spotlight from her, especially for younger women? Well, I mean, in particular, it shows that men are perfectly capable of being that way. It's just that they choose not to. They choose to not center the women in their lives. They choose to not actually uh, uplift them. It's a it's a choice. It's not just that they don't know how to do it. It's that they don't want to do it, which is worse. It's so much worse. And the way that he shows his admiration for Serena, the way that he shows his love, the way that he supports her is for I think in particular for young women, it's so important because you show it shows that you don't have to set the bar super low. Like it's not enough that a guy can do some dishes that he occasionally changes his underwear. It's the fact that he can go above and beyond for someone. And that sort of admiration is, it's different because I don't think that there is a lot of mutual respect. I don't think that men, I mean, men do not respect women. They do not see them as being equal human beings nor do they see them being worthy of, of uplifting and supporting. And so to not have your masculinity be threatened by someone who is successful, as successful as, as you are, more successful than you are, just goes to show some sort of deep insecurity. And Alexis is able to show that you don't have to settle for some bum who is going to be threatened by things that you do. You can be with someone who will go above and beyond to show how much you are worth, to show how amazing you are. And I think that's very threatening to a lot of people. 
Well, amen. You do not have to settle for some bum. And it's definitely very inspirational to see Alexis in action. Laura, thank you so much for joining me and breaking this down for us. Thank you so much. Bye. Up next, Isaac and Saeed, read your tweets. You don't just settle for a bum. All right, I see a lot of people asking for her at on the timeline. So it's Femme Feministe. That was Lara Witt. Um, that was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Oh, yeah, Femme Feministe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was great. Yeah. She was dope. I want to read more of her work. Do you need to settle for a bum? I sure don't. I'm sorry. I sure, I sure, I shall not, children. <laughs> they ain't bum rushing this page yeah. or stage. Uh, Julia said, Stephanie McNeil yelling, you don't have to settle for a bum is the new mantra. Yeah, I also want to point out her saying, uh, what was it just because a guy does the dishes sometimes and occasionally changes his underwear? <laughs> Bitch. A lot was learned. A lot Woo! was learned. And she's right. She didn't tell a lie there. <laughs> didn't tell a lie there. Shout out to Alexis. Okay, children, Rod, whatever's happening out there. Let's talk about the ghost or siblings. <laughs> Remember them? Uh, you had some tweets about them. Our friend of the show, Jenny Han, you might know her. Uh, I just watched Joan and Jennifer Gosar, and they seemed like really good and thoughtful people who don't take any of this lightly. They seemed maybe a little hurt by people calling them savage. I would add petty, you know. Mm how we say on Twitter. Uh, but I think they just don't know it's meant as a compliment. Yeah, this was an interesting part of it. So we read a thread earlier. Um, and, and A Seth's tweet. We read yeah, we tweets. read a Seth's tweet. But later on, he, he goes on to say that they actually emailed him. And they were like, hey, there's nothing petty about what we're doing. And he was like, one, can I share your email? Which he did. I recommend mm -hmm. you read it. Uh, but two, he was very much like, petty means something different here on right. the timeline. Right. And it is very interesting to see as, as people that are not um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like native to Twitter, mm -hmm. start to navigate it and start to navigate that language. Absolutely, and, I, and we've said a bit about this before, but also just the stakes, right? Like Twitter, fun, everything like that. But for a lot of people, I would say one of the very last taboos would be talking about family business at all, and certainly, you know, uh, in a political ad. And so I thought what Joan and Jennifer had to say about, like, listen, let's make it very clear. We, di we don't think this is funny. Like, the stakes are really high for And us. we put a lot of thought into yeah. it, and we did not rush that decision. That was really it was really great to talk with them. Uh, in light of the Ghost or Siblings, we asked you all how to handle political disagreements with your family during Thanksgiving. Jen Annie says, by not going to Thanksgiving. Hey. Hey! <laughs> Live in New York for I a reason. I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. Uh, but not everybody has that uh, unique uh, approach. Not everybody has that privilege that they can just skip out on family Thanksgiving. Right. And, and, and it is interesting, like, the back And I, I think I've given different answers. Y'all have asked me during Dear Ferocity. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I think we have to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. I think we have to have the arguments. What if the argument isn't productive? Are you just sending yourself home to, like, have a three-day long, you know, is it better to remove yourself? Mm. Campaign ads, you know. I <laughs> and maybe that's the answer. The answer is you should put a lot of time and thought into it, just like the Gozers did, mm -hmm. and really decide what's right for you. You need to do something. Mm. You need to do something. Princess Leia added, listen, this Thanksgiving, I'm going to be minding my own business on the canal. Girl, where do you live? Are you in, in, the, in Louisiana? Eating my mashed potatoes and seafood soup by myself. That's, that sounds like a Louisiana tweet, doesn't it? It does. Okay. The seafood soup. Look, now, now that we've been on the road for nine days, I'm like, oh, that's Louisiana. All of a sudden, we're just like, ah, New Orleans. <laughs> Ah, yes, down in the bayou. On down the in the bayou. <laughs> do what you have to do, but do what allows you to continue to feel that you're living in line with your own integrity. Amen. And uh, gumbo's good. Okay. <laughs> what a morning, guys. I, the news continues. What is happening? Last week continues into this week. I'm going to get out here before anything else breaks. Thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Rachel Lily Carmona, 
uh, Rachel O'Leary Carmona, Joan and Jennifer Goser, Jamie Harrison, Amos Sneed, Tracy Ullman, Laura Witt, and Eliza Blank. Absolutely, Ooh, and thank you to Ben Smith for joining us with that breaking news. Yes, friend. We will see you tomorrow. It will be Tuesday. It will be 10 a.m., and I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about. What else could possibly happen? <laughs>